When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the programme. This week, the Hedgehog and the Fox examined the humble postcard. I say humble, but when it was new, it was anything but. As Monica Couré, my guest on today's programme, points out, it was radical. In 1865, a German postal director, Heinrich von Stephan, came up with an idea to make business communication easier. A pre-stamped, thick-stock paper card of standard size. One side would be reserved for the address, and on the other the sender could write a short message, to be sent at a cheaper rate than a letter, regardless of distance. Von Stefan's boss rejected his proposal. There was, he felt, something indecent about so open a form of communication. It was the Austro-Hungarian Empire that issued the first postcards, in 1869, and within three months almost three million had been sold. Other countries soon followed suit, and with the later introduction of the picture postcard, the postcard would go on to become the subject of a craze. Anything and everything could be depicted, from great works of art to the main street of the dustiest provincial backwater. So why were they radical? Well, they were a cheap, swift, and crucially open means of communication. What if the wrong sort of person used them for the wrong sort of message? What if civilised discourse broke down as a result of so shorthand a form? What if they were used for anonymous libel, immoral purposes? What if it all happened too quickly for society to absorb? In 1903, an article in the presumably pro-postcard publication The Poster and the Postcard Collector said, It is announced from America that the picture postcard is threatening to disorganise their post office system in fact, is becoming a kind of Frankenstein monster. And that feeling was not confined to the United States. Monica Couré's new book, Picturing the Postcard, A New Media Crisis at the Turn of the Century, is a thoroughly absorbing exploration of the many ways in which postcards were a surprisingly disruptive new means of communication in the late 19th century and continued to make waves for decades more as a cultural and even political force. Postcards brought their disruptive power to fiction. They also played a grim part in recording lynchings in southern US states, as you'll hear, and they had a role in the history of colonialism. When Monica spoke to me from Romania recently, I first asked her about her realisation that postcards might be good to think with. 
yes, it was it was quite a, a long process and a steady realization that really began with um, beginning to look at technology in general in a new way. So my beginning work was actually uh, during my uh, doctoral program, I had a class on theories of photography. So really it was photography that I first started to think about um, technology in this new uh, in this new light of uh, how was it invented? What did it mean to people? How did people react to the newness of something that we take for granted? So it was during um, that that coursework that I first started to even think in general in these terms. But then it was uh, it was really a, a course that I took um, that looked at colonial visual culture, because the only work that had really been done up to that point to look at um, postcards, the material object critically, had been in uh, in colonial visual studies and looking at images of uh, Algerian women in postcards. So I thought putting those two concepts together. If I just began to to look a little bit into uh, what was the postcard when it was first invented, how did people know how to use it? And postcards were something that, on a personal level, I had been um, interested in in terms of more creative writing. So the postcard form was um, was an interesting uh, space for writing for me, and that really began when I started traveling uh, at eighteen. My graduation present from my family was a trip to Romania, and I was able to go to Poland to visit a friend then, and I started collecting postcards, some of which I did send to family and friends, but actually most of which I kept, (laughs) as you do, I suppose. Um, And since I had these postcards that I'd bought for a particular reason, there was something in the image that had spoken to an experience that I had. I decided to write basically little journal entries to myself about the postcard image and why I had chosen that postcard. And why? So it goes back. It goes back really to your, you know, to your adolescence <laughs> and your first travels. I was wondering, you know, you mentioned colonialism, and we'll come back to that, I'm sure. But when the postcard is is used as a piece of evidence in, say, a study of colonialism. It's used along with all sorts of other kinds of evidence. What you're doing is looking at the phenomenon of the postcard in a variety of different settings. And I wondered, what does that sort of shift in in perspective or the way that you're delineating the field? What does that bring that's, that's new? Because that seemed to me what was, what was particularly exciting about your book. Right. I, I think it gives it um, a, lot more, a lot more nuance to understand that some of... Um, some of the ways in which we use media. It's, it's kind of this old discussion about the ethics of media and are we using it well, are we not using it well, um, to kind of understand when we're looking at um, a colonial image and some of the ways that the postcard exerted power over colonized people, there are similar mechanisms as well in how they're depicting um, more local subjects so that um, some of these systems of oppression um, can actually really more talk to each other or the study of these systems of oppression can can speak to each other in a way that um, if you're simply looking at, at just one country, just one people's group, you won't see some of those um, through lines right. as clearly. Yeah. So to go back to the beginning, if you had asked me before I read your book about the origins of the postcard, I think I would have guessed that it would have been enabled by printing technology and perhaps entrepreneurship and people would have begun putting them out independently and they would have caught on that way. And that was completely wrong because there were, there were economic <laughs> um, determinants <laughs> and there were also issues of permission. So can you just say a little bit about, about how the postcard first came into being? 
Right. So I, I think that was also quite fascinating for me is to um, try to look at the different ways that even the beginning of the postcard is narrated. So that's one of the things that I that I do in my book to really show that um, already in the by the end of the 19th century, people were trying to remember how it was invented. And they're already remembering different things, uh, whether they're going to look at it from um, the point of view of the image or whether they're going to look at it in terms of uh, the circulation of mail. And I think that uh, we definitely tend to privilege the sort of what was official, what was uh, what was the government's role in, in this about. And I, I, I actually do really like that story because it points out uh, in very, I think, very dramatic terms how when the postcard was first, or this idea of the postcard was first suggested in 1865 by uh, the German uh, postmaster von Stephan, it was rejected. So this idea that um, it's too radical, the postcard is too radical, I think was something that really got me excited in thinking uh, there's there's so much more to this story. Yeah, and it was fascinating. I think his his boss said it would be indecent. He used the word indecent yeah. and he said to expose. So this idea of sort of exposure and indecency well, is amazing right. that that was, that was sort of raised right at the start as a first objection. Exactly, exactly. And it's, and it's so interesting how we become so much more comfortable with it afterwards that we forget that actually we're still exposing ourselves when we send a postcard, that that's still something that actually happens. We've just become so used to it. <laughs> yes. And some of the anxieties to us seem quaint that surrounded the postcard about, you know, basically how social order was going to come crumbling down. But mm. to people in the in the mid to late 19th century, they were they were clearly felt acutely those those anxieties. Yes, absolutely. But I, I do want to point out too that that was uh, some of the some of the population was uh, was feeling that anxiety, but other people were very excited yeah. about what was happening. They were embracing uh, the I, postcard. Exactly, exactly, and, and really having these uh, utopic hopes for what the postcard could do um, is the other half of that mm. equation with new media. So, so it was kind of one imagines men in positions of power who had access to print, who were perhaps expressing the anxiety, and people who mm-hmm. who found this new, less expensive, exciting mode of communication were were, were embracing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is uh, that was definitely a trend. Um, but really quickly in the way that things become popular, it quickly became not only the lower class using it or being excited about it or people who had kind of, you know, democratic ideals getting excited about it. But really, in my book, I talk about how there are monarchs who begin using it um, and it becomes uh, really a phenomenon unto itself where you can't not use it because it has become so popular, which is then, of course, you know, has its own kind of anxiety uh, built into that. Why is it so popular? And there's no escape from it. It's ubiquitous. Those kinds of things then come up. So apart from being less expensive than sending a letter, what were the other sort of salient differences that struck people who were sending those early postcards? Uh, there really are two moments in the postcards history when it gets talked about in these terms of newness. So the first was um, in beginning in 1865 with its first, the first time it was proposed in Germany to its first adoption uh, in Austria and in 1869 and then in the rest of the world in 1870. But then there's the picture postcards. So when the picture begins to be uh, regularly added and private printing happens is the other moment in which there's this huge boom in postcard use. 
and it seemed that everything then became fair game for, for a picture postcard. Right, right. So it was when the image was introduced, and it really gets more popular. The government first does it in some of the world's fairs. You have small images, images of the Eiffel Tower. So there's a little bit of, of prepping for, for the use of that. And some some people added their own images, but when... Um, when any image uh, is fair game, what becomes fascinating to me is that uh, all images are actually of interest, that it isn't just one type of image that, uh, that becomes popular, but really the ability to see the entire world represented on a postcard becomes salient to what the postcard is. So when you're traveling, Monica, do you go into shops that have collections of old postcards for sale and sort of leaf through them and think about what they're saying, what they were saying then and what they say to you now as a, as a sort of cultural theorist. Oh, absolutely. I, I, every time I travel, I'm always interested in, first of all, are there old postcards available? Do people value them? Do people think that that's something that somebody might want to buy? And if so, how much uh, monetary value are they attaching to it? Um, I find that in Europe, uh, I can actually get old postcards a lot more cheaply than I could in the States. Um, so that's that's been fascinating to me. And then to see, yeah, the diversity of images. What what were people wanting to to send to other people at the time? Absolutely. Now, one of the, the most interesting things about your book, I thought, was the way you track how the, the rise of the postcards popularity also coincided with a sort of explosion of mass literacy and popular literature and publishing as a business. And they go hand in hand in lots of interesting ways. And one that I wanted to talk about was this British writer, Marie Corelli, who was, you you say, one of the most famous and best-selling writers of her day around the, the turn of the 20th century. Can you say a little bit about how she felt about her image, and in particular, her image on postcards and, and what, what that led to? Absolutely. So Marie Corelli, with her enormous popularity, uh, was actually quite a private person in some ways. In some ways she wasn't. In some ways she was actually quite flamboyant in that she had moved to Stratford um, in England, the home of Shakespeare, and would have um, her carriage was drawn by a pony. So that was that was something that was actually quite flamboyant at the time. But she didn't like her image to appear in the newspaper. By this point, uh, that was pretty common for celebrities to have their image widely available. So she did really everything that she could to avoid that. Of course, it, it already had become impossible. So you already have really the beginnings of the paparazzi either taking photographs or, uh, in one case that I discovered, somebody had painted her mm. and she sued him. <laughs> On grounds of accuracy, which is, a, is kind of amazing, isn't it? Exactly. So it was a, a visual libel yes. is the language that they had uh, for that at the time. And so what happened in, in her case with that, with that challenge to the, the postcard producer? Right. I, I believe in that particular case, um, she was not able to prove that libel um, because it was not that that was produced at all. You couldn't really stop people from painting what they wanted to paint. Mm. <laughs> but I think she did her best. Yeah. Another interesting case I picked out was that of Phyllis Dare, who was an actress and signed thousands upon thousands of postcards of herself, which her fans would send to her and then and send back. And I thought what was particularly interesting about this was what you, what you call the illusion of proximity, that this connection via the postcard brought, which, which obviously pertained in this age of the postcard and, and would then wane. I wondered if you could say something about this illusion of proximity that you talk about. Right. I think that uh, celebrity really functions according to this illusion of proximity. 
one feels a kind of connection with the celebrity uh, through their work, through their art. But I think what changes with this visual culture uh, and, and the availability of images of celebrities is they feel proximity through, uh, through their visual image which on the one hand uh, has the effect of increasing the popularity of that celebrity, but in other ways, it, it really is a kind of um, way that, that a person could be vulnerable, as I've shown through a few examples. And, and definitely Marie Corelli felt it. Phyllis Dare talks about how she just learned to kind of accept it more as, um, as a function of, of being famous. Mm. But at the beginning, I mean, she talks about not going down any dark alleys for a while because of the, she had received a particular postcard from a fan saying that he meant to win her love by fair means or foul. And I guess, I guess the modern co-relative would be, a, would be a threatening tweet, wouldn't it? Right, right. So um, I think it's interesting because this uh, illusion of proximity in that sense really can work both ways. And I think it was only through experience and seeing that nothing actually did happen to her that uh, she started to uh, to not be worried about such messages anymore. With a tweet, I, I wonder about that. Uh, I recently read an article about how tweets actually might function slightly differently mm. in that um, many times they, they actually can affect your career. They can actually affect what people um, think about you. And that might have actually been a little bit more similar to um, libel postcards, right. where somebody yes, could send a message about you and how awful you are on a postcard, knowing that other people besides you would read that message yeah. and make you know, draw certain conclusions. Yeah, I was surprised you say law journals were littered with postcard libel cases. So it wasn't, it wasn't just the, the, you know, the odd one or two. It was, it was quite a common phenomenon. Exactly, exactly. As people were still trying to think through, um, well, you know, how to use this form also, I think, right on its heels, where how do you not use this form or how are you not allowed to use this form? Yeah. Well, you quote the instructions to um, people working in the French postal system who were told that they must or no can read the postcard's message. But, <laughs> but, but conversely, they weren't allowed to deliver anything which was libelous or abusive. Right. So that's a tricky one to pull off, isn't it? Very hard to do, yes. <laughs> now, as well as the postcard sort of working in this sort of publicity arena around literature, postcards, of course, also find their way into the literary text themselves. Now, the epistolary novel has a long history and letters and novels have a long history. So I wondered, could you say what, what it is about the postcard that brought some kind of new charge? Because it clearly does bring a new charge when they find their way into literature. Right. So the postcard in many of these texts really function as a symbol of the new and as a disruptor. So it's a new form of communication that's going to disrupt this older order. And if literature is, is sort of predicated, especially novels, uh, is predicated on a sort of, you know, genteel tradition of letters, then having a postcard uh, being sent by a character is already it's going to raise a question mark. What kind of character is this and what do they want? Uh, what kind of havoc are they going to wreak? So because people could could either send postcards anonymously or they could pretend to be other than they were or they could allow something to go into a more public sphere than the than a sealed letter would. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of my favorite uh, postcards that I've encountered in literature that I write about is when a baby writes a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> now, we touched on colonialism at the start a little bit. I wanted to come back to that because I thought the pages you have on that in the book were, were really interesting. And from that, it's clear that, in a sense, the postcard is helping 
to perform the work of colonialism. It's not simply a a record of it. It's actually doing something within the economy of colonialism. And I I picked out a quote that you, you have in the book, a contemporary source saying, it's a means for the mother country to know what is going on in her colonies. So I wondered, could you just explain a little bit about what, how that worked? Absolutely. So that, and that was seen as a, a very positive statement. Mm. That was actually from a postcard journal. Uh, yes, there was a postcard journal that was uh, quite popular at the time talking about this new form and expressing excitement over the possibilities of this new form. And that was a positive statement as another good thing that the postcard could do. So seen in that way, it, the postcard was, uh, was also seen as being educational. It could provide images of something that one normally wouldn't see. But of course, coupled with the ideology that one, one deserves the resources connected to another people, another country, um, that's where it really served uh, the cause of colonialism and expresses a, a similar sort of logic where postcard publishers are trying to be comprehensive. Anything that could be of interest to absolutely anyone, anything that could be of use was pictured, was uh, featured as pictures on postcards. Mm. It's sort of playing into that late 19th century, early 20th century kind of desire to categorize, to classify, to order. And of course, by doing that, you're dividing and you're, you're setting demarcation lines, which cannot be crossed. Absolutely. And, and doing so often in such a way that you're presenting your divisions and your categories as pre-existing truths. So you're not creating them uh, on the spot, uh, as, as would happen, um, that they're, you're simply discovering them, you're uncovering these divisions that already exist. And one of the things that, um, that uh, Malek Alula, who uh, wrote um, The Colonial Postcard, which was uh, really influential in my beginning this project, uh, shows is that they were absolutely fantasies. So many of these divisions, so many of the labels were wrong. And it really was because it was a fantasy. Yeah. And he uses the category, doesn't he, sub-eroticism, which is a way of permitting something or examining something in a way that wouldn't that wouldn't have been socially permissible within the, the metropolitan culture. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that really goes back to even right as, as recently as National Geographic um, decades back and what was acceptable in terms of female nudity from Africa was acceptable in a way that it wasn't from Europe or North America. Probably the most shocking thing, I think, Monica, in the book was your account of how lynchings became the subject of postcards. You talk about a particular instance in Tennessee where not just one photographer, but but a whole number of photographers turned up at a lynching and even a printing press had been wheeled on in order to to literally supply images hot off the press. And again, I suppose my my question about, about that sort of horrifying scene is what is the postcardness of it doing as opposed to any other form of of recording. Right, yeah, that, that for me also was one of the most shocking things I encountered, and it really was in starting to talk about my project that, some, that a friend told me, well, you know, have you heard about these lynching postcards, which I, I hadn't. So that is not something that I think is widely known, even in American consciousness. Um, 
as a phenomenon. So as I began doing research and, and looking at some of these postcards, the postcardness of it is um, really the spectacularity of it, the open form that these images um, would be sent um, with this understanding that this was not only okay, but um, for the people posing in these pictures with these mutilated bodies, that was something to be even celebrated as a kind of victory. And that's something that um, the open form of the postcard is why it became the form or a form that was used um, for for this lynching photography. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of appalling flagrancy about it, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly what it is. And, and it's a kind of it's really terrorism, actually. I, I don't think I put it in those terms in this book. But the more I think about it um, and the more that I hear more and more, you know, what's happening in the States. It's, it's a form of terrorism. It's, it's actually a spectacular form of making others afraid. Mm. The flagrancy of it is, uh, is what will communicate that um, no one's going to stop us. And the, the, the US Postal Service banned the circulation or the dissemination of those lynching cards in 1908. But did that, did that simply send it underground or in, 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 under the cover of an envelope? Absolutely. It absolutely did. So uh, they were continuing to be produced. Uh, lynchings were, were continuing to happen. But now they were simply being sent uh, in an envelope, which I think is also quite telling for the way these things um, at times in history become less visible. But then media also has the opportunity to make them visible, which then, you know, on the positive side, um, actually exposes what's happening. And I, I write about how a journalist for the NAACP talked about how they wouldn't have even known about a lynching were it not for a postcard of it finding its way to them. Mm. We talked about literary uses of the postcard. It's also been much used in art. And here, I, I guess, one of the, the classic examples is Marcel Duchamp's appropriation of the Mona Lisa and the addition of a, a beard and moustache. And again, I suppose he could have acquired that image in other formats. Is it significant, do you think, that he, he chose to use a postcard format? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, by the time that Duchamp uh, is is getting to um, to think about postcards, postcards have been around, and what they are in the public imaginary has become a more stable thing. It's it's a popular form. It's uh, already made. It exists already in the world. It's really the opposite of of high art. Um, in ways that at first when the postcard was invented, uh, there wasn't such a, such a clear delineation. Some people would actually collect these postcards and display them as if they were art because they were uh, images that were available. And as you say, the division of the back of an art postcard is less frequent, isn't it? It's often just a plain background, which is, I suppose, an invitation to think about them in a different way, to pin them up on your on your wall or your, or your notice board or something rather than necessarily something you want to send. It's kind of a, a way of... I suppose, constituting your your own self and taste by sort of saying, look, I've visited these museums and I've seen these paintings. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Which is really funny because now that I think about it, as a college freshman, I had postcards, art postcards that I did put up on my freshman wall in that way. <laughs> but I guess we've we're sort of entered a, an era of irony. And I'm thinking of, of the, the work of Martin Parr, who has collected famously boring postcards. But... <laughs> But by framing them in a particular way within the, the, the confines of, a, of a, I suppose, a fine art book, what, what is he saying by referencing those sort of dull parking lots of the 1950s or shopping malls of the 1970s? 
it, it is this way in which uh, art and history uh, has this incredible circularity where things come back, but now we're looking at them in a different way. And it's really our gaze that is creating this art object rather than the object itself. So it's so much uh, of the viewer's participation. And, and maybe in, in some ways that, that does remind me of Duchamp, how the museum space itself, the way that we're looking at this object um, is part of the way that it is formed. So maybe we can we can just sort of finally come come round to the present day, Monica. And do you think the postcard is going to disappear entirely, or do you think there will be diehards who will find new ways to use it, or nostalgic ways of of using it, or do you think it's it's really going to dwindle and die? Oh, I I think it's still here to stay. I literally it was the other day that I found um, a post by a friend of mine who uh, is an author, Caitlin Horrocks, and she was saying that she and some other well-known authors are auctioning off postcards with their signature that they're actually going to send to book lovers over the holidays to raise money for their nonprofit. And I thought that is so completely 19th century. (laughs) That is literally something that happens that I came across uh, in my research. So there's something about the materiality of the postcard uh, in the 21st century that we still crave, even though there are now almost digitized forms of postcards. So the postcard as a concept has become uh, somewhat free-floating in in its designation as um, an image or a thought from, from far away, so the travel postcard. But even so, it's the material postcard that we do keep coming back to. Mm. Well, this this may amuse you. Um, and it's probably the reason that I was attracted to your book in the first place. But when I started this podcast, I was thinking about ways to to sort of make it distinctive and cut through the noise. And I thought, perhaps I could write to invite authors to take part and invite them to write back and then photograph those artefacts and put them on the website and kind of, and, you know, there was something about sort of cutting through all the digital communication and, and I suppose doing something that was rather quaint and 19th century. And I think what I think, I think what stopped me was the thought it would just take so long and my success rate might, you know, might dwindle. Um, and I might, and postcards are more expensive these days. They're no longer cheaper than, than letters. Oh, absolutely. And I suppose that would have been that would have been part of the part of the thing, you know, to, to sort of make to, to look like I was making an effort. But I thought, well, I'll have to write out the URL of my website and someone have to type it in and. And I thought maybe 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 not, but it it still appeals to me as a sort of. But I, also, I couldn't I couldn't really think of a strong enough rationale for it, you know, for this particular project why it should have that that particular angle. But it was something that did well, go through my mind. I, I love that, and what's really what's really funny to me, and I I once uh, I once wrote um, an op ed piece for the LA Times about this, how the postcard today really is in some ways it, it signifies the the opposite of what it signified in the 19th century mm. in terms of speed. Yes. So in the 19th century, the postcard was seen as the fastest way that you could communicate with someone. Yeah. Whereas today, it's seen as old fashioned and, and quite, as you were saying, it would be quite slow. But then what that signifies um, is a whole package of associations. And one of those is, um, I think, the ways in which we're now actually even talking about conversations. The term to have a conversation, to have a discussion, is really in opposition to the way that people communicate online. Yes. Um, And it's this kind of more in-person, more personal, and it's something that a lot of people are are feeling really nostalgic for. So even something like the two of us talking in your podcast um, has, I think, that connection with what we associate with the postcard today. Mm. I was talking to Monica Couré about Picturing the Postcard, a new media crisis at the turn of the century. It's just been published by Minnesota University Press and is available in paperback. 
you can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.